So this morning as we jump into the text of Luke 12, it's important as we walk through what has just been read from 22 through 34. We'll handle that whole section this morning. But really, it's important for us to see this as a part of the entire conversation that we have already begun earlier in that same chapter between the parable of the rich landowner and the brothers who were divided over the inheritance. It's important that we read it um, that way because Jesus just gave a lengthy discussion regarding possessions and greed. And then now he turns over and look at verse 21, just so we have this, this, this idea of we're still in the conversation this morning about possessions. I'll, again, I want to pause just, just slightly to remember uh, for the sake of all of our minds the scene that is taking place at this point in time. There are thousands of people there, remember, at this point in time in the discussion with the crowds. Presumably, and I don't think it's a stretch whatsoever, presumably there are many people crying out for their issues to be addressed. And our Lord at this point isolates the discussion about possessions through the inheritance dispute between the brothers. So this is a significant discussion, and I push it even further about how significant it is for all of us regarding this issue of possessions, because it's not just the first half conversation between the brothers and then the parable about the landowner, but yet again, the discussion is extended this morning in the following text. So it is not just one thing about possessions, that the only problem with our thoughts towards possessions is greed. But there's more to it. It's more complex than that. And so this is a significant issue for discipleship and the cost of discipleship to consider how we view and approach possessions. Notice how the discussion is an extension of the previous discussion with verse 21 of chapter 12. So is the one. So he gets done with the parable of the landowner, and I don't want to keep going over it too long to belabor it, but so just jump in at 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So again, so is the one, as in he, this, this parable stands as an example for anybody and everybody afterward. This is just a norm, period. This is how you will end when you are not rich toward God whatsoever. To the exclusion of riches towards God, you pursue riches through greed. So he turns with this kind of summary thought to draw it in. It's not just the, the, the landowner, and it's not just the brother. It's anybody who pursues the same path of greed and is not rich toward God. Verse 22 now begins to extend the conversation because, again, that's not all there is to be said. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on. Now, again, it it might seem like, how is this connected? How is that a therefore? That like, uh, talking about greed, he then turns and says to his disciples, after I've dealt with greed and possessions, I'm telling you, therefore, based on what I just said about greed, don't be anxious about your life. How is this a, how how are these two things corresponding? You see, 
Where the brothers and the landowners sought to secure their futures is the issue. How they sought to secure their futures without reference to God is the issue. They sought to secure it through the gathering and collecting of items to the exclusion of God. Whereas you and I, believers, Christians, or in this text in verse 22, he said to, as we would call ourselves, disciples. Disciples are to seek not only their futures. This is how the texts come together as a larger discussion about possessions. Disciples, this is for each of us in here who confess Christ. Disciples are to seek not only their futures, but even their everyday sustenance from God. Now, thinking in those terms, the sense of everyday subsistence or, or, or everyday care in the life of a disciple, that is, in the life of a Christian, that we would give over to God the everyday maintenance of our lives, naturally, if you heard that for the first time, without a doubt, but I think even though you hear it afresh this morning and have read this text probably multiple times, when we deal with this category of everyday, moment-by-moment sustenance and care from the Lord, naturally raises a question in the mind about personal security. It just naturally does. Again, it's easy to say, sure. But then when you get down to like the pocketbook of things or the monthly balance of the items, cash in and cash out, and then your life and lived in career, and then all of the issues of settling, uh, settling bills and so on and so forth, it gets a little more cloudy than this oversimplified immediate, sure, I rely on God every day. It gets a little trickier than that. It naturally brings out our insecurities about personal provision. In other words, think about it like this. As our Lord then says, therefore, based on what I just told you about greed, I'm telling you, don't be anxious about your life. Again, If we live more generously, the opposite of the landowner and the opposite of the brothers, as our Lord says, therefore, because I just stripped down greed and I told you, you don't want to follow materialism. You want to be rich toward God. But that naturally raises a question. If I live more generously, less greedily, less less hoarding of my items, if I live more generously, how can I be sure that I will have everything that I need? That's the challenge. Maybe we're not all about the materialism. We're not all trying to gather, conquer, and keep. But maybe at the same time, we're not vulnerable to be used of the Lord in relationship to our resources either. So we can feel like maybe a discussion on greed doesn't have us in view. But it's not just stay out of greed. It's 
Remember what the law forbids, it also requires. It's not just stay away from greed. It also calls you to pursue generosity. So, so if I can't hoard, how will I know that you will care for me? Now, I, I want to give the answer of the passage up front, and then we'll just walk through it. But just because I'm giving the answer, please don't go to sleep. <laughs> not allowed. The answer in short, and then I'll give you a really long one, is, again, if I live more generously, how can I be sure that you will give me everything I need or that I will have everything I need? The answer is in the text, because your father knows you need them. Full stop. That's case closed. How will I know? Because your father knows that you're in need of them. That's that's the rationale that is working in generosity. That's the rationale that is driving me away from greed. I need to get or I won't have. Says who? Well, later in the text, pagans. Not God's people. Well, then, how will I know I'll have them? Because your father knows you need them. But again, knowing that confessionally, and I trust that if not all of us, the majority of us in here as being believers, we all have that tension regularly, no matter the topic and no matter the text, that knowing it confessionally, as we do Psalm 118 this morning, confessing that together, that that indeed be the word of God to us. Confessing it and living it out experientially or faithfully are often distances apart in our lives. That's just the dynamic of being human, the dynamic of being sinners, the dynamic of being pilgrims in the age that is passing away, truly seeking to live through faith. We, we can say, and mentally we can go there much quicker than we can experientially or faithfully those tend to be distances apart. But that's the answer to the text. Your father knows your life. He knows that you have needs. He doesn't need you to assist through greed and lack of generosity. Notice how then through the text, Jesus makes a series of arguments to help us in the weakness of our faith, to, to look at, to kind of to pull back the earthly curtain and let us see the heavenly perspective on possessions. He wants us to thoughtfully consider through faith our life in this pilgrim's journey in relationship to possessions. Look at the argument of verse 22 and 23. Again, and so he eliminates greed and he turns and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, No, 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 we need to get in order to have. No, 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 no. I tell you, don't be anxious just because you can't be greedy. Just because you can't hoard, because you can't keep, because you can't maintain and conquer. Don't be anxious about your life. Then notice carefully the nuance of the discussion, how he speaks of life in in that comment, about your life. 
what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And, and, and this, this is quite formative for the entire passage in verse 23. We really have to key in on, on, on the argument he's making here. He says, for Here's, here, here's the foundation for the statement of why you don't need to be anxious. Life is more than food. Do you, do you, do you see what he's, do you see that's, that's staggering? I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. And then the description of life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will wear or put on, for life is more than food. And the body, it's more than clothing. This is so significant for the entire passage because the argument that he is making, you notice he goes all the way down to the most basic categories of provision in order to establish his point that you don't need to live anxiously. He goes down to the most basic elements as he speaks to his disciples. It's not like he said, don't worry about having a mansion. You know, a, a, a three and a half story will do. It, it, it's, it's not, well, yeah, okay, give and take. It, it, it's, it's all the way down to the very bottom, the basic bare bones of sustenance, food and clothing. And here he says, essentially this, even focusing on these most basic items, Food and clothing from a place of anxiety and worry is wrongly minimalist. Now, how could it be minimalist to view the finer details of my life? It seems if I find the basic bare bones of food and clothing, that's not undervaluing my existence. It seems like that's the only thing that I need to sustain my existence. He says, no, 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 don't be anxious about food. Are you kidding me? If I don't have it, I can't. No, 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 I'm not kidding. And, and about your clothing, what you'll put on. Well, if I don't have clothing, I'm going to freeze. Or, I mean, how do, no, your thinking on food and clothing is wrongly minimalist to the value of your life. No, I'm thinking about the bare minimum, right? I'm telling you, that is still a minimalist view of the value of your life. In other words, I want you to think that life is more than food and clothing. Now, in making this argument that life is more than what it takes to sustain life, we have to appreciate how intense this moment really is in our cost of discipleship. Jesus is essentially eliminating any operation of moderation in our life of faith. You know, it's not that, you know, some of us have been given over to believe really intensely and try to model through faith our life of discipleship, and then others of us have the symptom whereby we're allowed to live by moderation. Right here he is looking at all of his disciples and he is saying essentially to know me, love me, resemble me, and serve me. I must become the supreme passion of your life. 
everything else comes second. And by everything else, he's saying, you know, like food and clothing. Because life, real life, is more than that. Now, again, consider just how challenging this would have been, not just in our moment here, if we can receive this through faith and follow the text and see the argument about the importance of living through faith in God, our Father who provides, but consider even the historical perspective. So you have thousands of folks gathered, and and he just, as we said again and again, he did away with greed, and then he turns and he says, just because you can't hoard and keep, don't now worry and be anxious. And not even about what? About food and clothing. Now, maintaining these basic provisions of food and clothing. And again, we might be a bit removed from this. I would would imagine most of us in here, uh, if not all, probably were able to go downstairs or or whatever have you and get something to eat this morning. Um, so, so, again, but I don't want, because we can get something to eat and because we can typically uh, get clothing on, uh, we, this text just doesn't speak to us or make any sense. Again, maintaining these most basic provisions of food and clothing historically to those folks who are standing there right before our Lord's speaking would have been precisely occupied day in and day out, sun up and sun down with simply finding food, cultivating it, growing it, selling it and earning an income whereby they could eat themselves food and be clothed. Again, these most basic items is precisely what occupied the peasant families of Judea. And he is saying, sun up and sun down. He's saying, don't be focused on these items from a perspective of worry and anxiety. So again, to say that we are not to worry about the most basic elements of life is really hard to grasp. Our Lord is saying, if you focus on food and clothing or the simple sustenance of life, you are minimalist in your view to what is important. Now, I'd like to probe this out just for a few more moments together to think about it from this perspective. Let me ask a question and then hopefully walk through and provide somewhat of an answer to drive home this thought about the significance of real life, about the language of our Lord. How can you say, again, from the perspective that I have to eat in order to stay alive? And he's saying, no, life is more than that. You see the nuance there. So, so I want to ask the question here and hopefully answer it together as we walk through the text. How can, and this is the question I want to probe for just a moment, how can life be more than the most basic elements that sustain one's life? How can life be more than the most basic elements that sustain one's life? Because remember, without these elements, I can't live. So how can life itself be more than these? The answer has to be, and then hopefully probe it a little bit, but the answer has to be 
that physical life in this age, and this is important for us to meditate upon, not only in these moments, but each and every day, physical life in this age, while being significant, is less significant than spiritual life in the age to come. That's the only calculus of this passage that will make sense of our Lord's comment. Life is more than what it takes to keep you alive here and now. So do not obsess, either from the angle of greed and getting or from the angle of worry and anxiety. Either angle is wrong in its approach toward possessions. Because yes, life is significant. And what is done today will indeed last forever. So it's not like we just want to do away with the physical as though it's somehow bad. Or that our life lived in this pilgrim's progress is of no value. I'm not even suggesting that. And clearly neither is our Lord. Yet, there is a scale of significance by which to measure the weight between the significance of our physical life and the significance of our spiritual life. This is why our Lord can simply say, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll put on. Life itself is more than food and it's more than clothing. And it's this sense of getting the right measure between the age that is passing away that we live in today and that which is to come in the age that is dawning. And and as we kind of live in between the ages, passing our time, the main point that our Lord drives home in the text this morning is that we must measure rightly the significance of our life in the age to come. Again, look at the text now, verses 29 through 31. It's not a scrapping of the physical, but it is a call to examine proper due weight, the physical and the spiritual life together. Look at verse 29, jump all the way down through 31, just so we can see the argument, or, uh, yeah, through 31. Let me, let me jump up to piece together the argument. Uh, I'll reread 20, uh, beginning at 22, and we'll see. We'll skip the two considerations or the natural examples. Just listen to the argument itself. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows you need them. Do you see the distinction in verse 30 between who's pursuing after things, like even the most basic things, from a perspective of worry and anxiety and greed. Who? The nations of the world. But look at the distinction of the relationship to us. We know God as what? Father. You see the argument. 
there are millions of people passing time in the age. And, and some don't know God as Father. And they pursue possessions, the conquering of them, the gathering of them, the keeping of them through either greed or worry. Why do they do that? Jesus points out, because they don't know God as Father. This is the argument of where we're beginning to see a different perspective toward possessions. Verse 31, instead, because you know God as Father, instead, distinctly, as a disciple, seek His kingdom. And these, these things, these necessary elements of your subsistence, these necessary elements that sustain your life, if it be necessary, they'll be added to you. Verse 33. Look, he goes further into the perspective of passing our days in this age well. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves the money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, again, how do we live with a healthy detachment from material gain? Not become obsessed with getting rid of every item we have. Because that's not the command that every disciple in here must walk out, verse 33, and sell all their possessions and give them all to the needy. But do you see the contrast at work is actually this healthy detachment. Verse 33, sell what you have and give it to the needy. Do what else? Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. You can't go down to the store and buy those ones. So the contrast isn't sell everything, rattle, get rid of everything and live in a cave in order that somewhere in that cave you'll find the money bags that don't grow old or, or, or you'll lay hold of a treasure in the heavens that does not fail in your own might by getting rid of everything that you've sold. But rather he's addressing this issue of possessions from healthy detachment. They don't control you. They don't drive you. They're not conquering you. You're able to freely give them up. You're able to well understand money comes and money goes. Again, how would we live with this sense of godly zeal if we as believers tamed all the texts of our Lord in the Gospels and live with Christian moderation? This isn't my struggle or these aren't my challenges. Or to fool ourselves into thinking, this is how I live. This is the approach that I have. And yet, if we watched our actual balancing at the end of the month, we would then actually know how we do live. Where the cash actually goes. 
what our perspective is on spending. That would be a time of examination for all of us when we look at it from a perspective of generosity and a healthy detachment. Now, the question that stands is this. How then do we live a life filled with materialism, constantly signaling and sirening out to us to get, to get, to get, to get? And we all get caught up in it, in the age of materialism. How do we live in such an age, obediently before the Lord, by not being greedy or failing to be generous and living anxiously? How do we do it? And the answer comes to us this way, through the instrument of faith. That's the answer of the passage. How how do we live in such a way that we're generous and marked as believers and the way that we handle our finances, the way that we handle our things, and we resist the sin that slowly creeps in from multiple categories of greed? How then do we live apart from both of them honoring the Lord? The answer is through the instrument of faith. And I press it a little bit more this way to understand what I mean by we live through the instrument of faith. And it is this, faith that I'm directing you toward and what Jesus is showing us in the passage is not a blind faith. Like some, you know, ambiguous idea or term or concept of living in something called faith versus what's knowable and really actually transformative We speak of it as in faith. It's not that at all, but rather this is a faith, an instrument that takes into account the very essence of God as Father. It's a faith that we as His children gaze upon Him through His Word and through His table as He who provides sovereign care as a Heavenly Father. That's what faith's eyes feast upon that he is my father and that he has provided for me he has abundantly cared for me and the greatest provision and abundance I see is in his table the giving of his own son for me That's why our Lord draws just quickly, look, he, he, he says this is the perspective. Faith takes into account the essence of a sovereign God. Verse 24, consider ravens. He's pointing to sovereignty and power, provision. Why are you so anxious? Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. God who? God who? Your Father. That's who. Verse 30. Your Father who feeds the ravens. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? Consider the lilies, another example driven by sovereign power and care. Consider the lilies, how they grow. Look at them. And what a perfect text for as we someday move towards spring here in Pittsburgh. And it might even be this afternoon. 
a perfect text. That's where we could take this text and just apply it immediately. Walk out and see the tulips are actually coming out. And Jesus says, yeah, good, dude, take a walk. Look at them. And don't just look at them, consider them. Consider how they grow. How is it that a tulip grows? How is it that the, that the uh, are they, I get this wrong, are there perennials is the one that comes up each year? Is that correct? Versus the annual? It's up once and dies? Something, right? Rick, how does that exactly work? How does it die, germinate, then come back, so on and so forth? I don't know. Consider it. <laughs> Why? Right? Consider it. Why? Because it, it's how God cares. Think about it. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you this as you gaze upon their beauty. Even Solomon, and you know all of him, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of them. So then work the logic of the text just for a moment. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and it's amazing how it doesn't toil or it doesn't spin, but consider it's here in grass, here in the field today, and tomorrow, tomorrow, simply a day, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, guys, you of little faith. But all I care about is food and clothing. Oh, you of little faith. You're too minimalist about the value of your life. Life is way more than food and clothes. This, the testimony that stands out to us to encourage us as well, I would encourage you and myself, each of us, to take a moment maybe and be able to read through the text. But this is the story of Hebrews 10 and 11. The triumph of those who live through faith in an age that is passing away. Story after story about saint after saint who resisted the momentary pleasure because they were looking for something other. They knew life is more than the body. Thus, in the text of Hebrews 11, you see them letting their body be sawn in two. Life is more than this body. Moses, considering it better to suffer with Egypt than in, or suffer with Israel for the reproach of Christ than enjoy the fleeting riches of Egypt. How? Because he did so by the instrument of faith. What we learn from that text and this text, as the logic of our Lord makes clear, faith liberates from the stranglehold of materialism. I need to hold on to it. In fact, I'm going to steal from my neighbor in order to have more, or misrepresent myself in order to have more. That's the wealthy landowner. No, don't do that. Well, then if I don't, I'm going to have nothing. No, don't live in worry. Live through the instrument of faith. And not a blind faith, a faith that rests in a sovereign God. Look at the ravens and look at the lilies. Oh, you're his children. Faith that gazes upon the sovereign care of a God who loves and provides, liberates from the stranglehold of materialism, and further, it empowers us not just to not be something, but it enables and empowers us to seek the kingdom of God as primary. That's what the instrument of faith enables. Look at the language of verse 32. Well, verse 31, and then it leads into verse 32. 
instead, in, 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 instead of being pagan in your perspective, verse 30, don't be pagan. You're God's people. The same one that feeds the ravens and raises up the grass. You're his and he is yours. So instead of being pagan, seek his kingdom. All the things you need, if necessary, will be added to you. Look at this beautiful language of verse 32. Fear not, little flock. Look at how Christ unites us through himself to the Father. Right? Through faith in Christ and union to him, he is my elder brother and God is my Father. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Think about the moment, just for a moment, the thought of fear not, or, or as he comes to you this morning and to myself, to each of us, he says to us in our struggles, our struggles of, I won't, I'm not going to make it, I don't have enough, how will I achieve X, Y, and Z? What will happen if such and such does fall to take place? And then he comes to you and I and says, fear not, Adam, fear not, little flock, fear not, my people. You see, anxiety is the opposite, an enemy to faith. Anxiety, even though all of us, I, I, I mean, we could probably just go, if we, we started looking, I should have looked. If we started listing all of the phobias that are listed right now that people struggle with, we would all be overwhelmed. I mean, it's not like, you know, we all struggle with well, like one or two things. I mean, we could just go phobia after phobia after phobia after phobia after phobia. I think there's even, honestly, I think there's a phobia of phobias. That's not being silly. I, I think that's true. You can fact check me. I think that's true. I'm worried that I'm going to be worried about being worried about worried things. You know? but, but the point of stress here, God, a sovereign father who cares and provides, says, fear not. Don't live like that because anxiety is the opposite of faith. It never liberates. It only constrains. You staying up all night will not nourish you or change the outcome. Anxiety never liberates. It only constrains. It never, like the gospel, it never, like the gospel, empowers. It only subtracts. One author wrote it this way, worry is a thief. It steals our time, it steals our rest, it steals our health, it steals our obedience. In the end, anxiety steals our sense of hope. Or perhaps if you would prefer to hear from a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard once said, quote, Worriers feel every blow that never falls. And they cry over things they will never lose. Do you see the insanity of our creatureliness? Anxiety steals, but faith empowers. Just think for a moment as we conclude. The logic of the passage that appeals to your mind to be grasped 
and transform in your mind and enable and nourish your faith and empower your life to seek the kingdom is simply this. If God feeds the birds and allows water to fall upon the grass that it might be lush and plush, how much more than will he feed his children who alone are made in his image. My final thought in conclusion is this. Consider these thoughts from Elizabeth Cheney. Perhaps you were, had to memorize this when you were younger at some point in time. The thoughts of Elizabeth Cheney in her poem, quote, entitled, Overheard in an Orchard. Said the, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Let's pray. Father, let us rise above the logic or the simplicity or the nothingness of animals. We are your people. Let us rise above a perspective on life of nihilism and gathering and conquering for our own greed, for there is no other life other than what is here and now. Let us be your children living through the instrument of faith in your so obvious fatherly love and care. We are reminded in this Palm Sunday as we move toward Maundy Thursday and Holy Friday, as we look to Lord's Day Resurrection, there is no greater provision of what you have given to us as a heavenly father than to make us your children by giving us your son. We see him in the table and the symbols of the table regularly, whereby our faith is so nourished. What more must we see observably that our faith will come to rest in you as truly a provisional father? Help us to fight with faith against materialism and greed. Help us to be your people in an age that is passing away. In Christ's name I pray, amen.